Are you obsessed with chess, but also kind of fun at parties? Do you keep your opening prep on your bedside table right next to your feelings journal? Welcome to the Chess Feels Podcast, the only chess podcast dedicated to the social and psychological aspects of this game we know and love. And hate. Tune in every week to join me, professional chess teacher and amateur feelings haver, JJ Lang. And me, professional therapist and amateur checkmate finder, Julia Rios as we dive into our shared love for the game and attempt to answer the most burning question for every chess obsessive. Why are we like this? Yeah. Welcome back to Chesterfield's podcast. This week, we have a very special guest. You may know them as Sam. You may know them as Sammy. Welcome our guest, Sam. Hi. I am very happy to be here. It's, it's, I don't know. I'm excited. And to the audience, I go by she, her pronouns. I am 21 years old and I live in Florida. Okay. And so as has become tradition on this show, when we have a guest, one of us has to introduce the guest for them. So uh, Julia, please introduce Sam. (laughs) Who is she? Why is she here? Sammy, I would do you such a disservice. Oh, is that the tradition? I have to introduce the guest? JJ, you are Sammy's teacher. I'm one of many teachers. Yeah, you don't always have to, but I think that you would do a lovely job. This is Sam. We invited her on the podcast because she's awesome. And because I met Sam when she reached out to me on Twitter about lessons and coaching and stuff, but also just about really being interested and active and building up more of a queer and trans friendly and inclusive community for chess, like through Discord servers and everything else. And just seeing the slightly younger generation be way more open and proactive on that stuff than really any of my peers ever seem to be is the kind of inspirational shit that I just want to see more of in the chess world. And also Sam is a badass who has gained 1400 rating points in the past year. (laughs) Yeah, technically. (laughs) Yeah. I don't know if I can even boast that just because I was, I had my 118 rating. (laughs) You can, and you should. (laughs) I technically did gain 1400 USCF points. And so that makes Sam a perfect guest as well, because I just like the idea that we rail against improver culture as being the only thing to go for. And then our first adult (laughs) improving chess player has literally had a 1400 point year. Sammy, do you want to explain (laughs) how you had your 118 rating at first? Yeah. So when I was in elementary school, I think it was in first grade. My mom was like, we're going to sign you up for chess. And I thought I heard like chest and I envisioned like a giant treasure chest with candy. Oh my God. And I was like, yes, that sounds like a great time. So then I go and then it's like a board game. It was fun. I learned how to play. I remember my first ever chess game. I captured my opponent's king and I just stood up screaming, I won, I won, I won. And the teacher came up and was like, no, that's not how you win. (laughs) (laughs) And it it was definitely like for six-year-old me, I was like, oh, I just won so easily. This game is so easy. And then they're like, no, that's not how you win. I'm like, oh, this is harder than I thought. (laughs) I started playing again at age 26 and I had a very similar experience (laughs) Like, this is a little harder than I thought. It's like that tweet that's like, why do people think chess is so hard? Just don't get checkmated. Do you know what I'm talking about, JJ? No, but I I know the genre of tweets. Like, you know, chess is a game of luck. It all depends on what pieces you get. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, I'll have to find it. Anyway, sorry, Sammy, continue. So I had two friends growing up. 
and they excelled at chess before I did. I think we got into actual like USCF rated tournaments when we were eight and they were like teams of three and they needed me to play as their third person. And they were already like 800 to 1000 rated as like eight year old. I looked at my record from that age. I uh, I think I played 15 games and I had one win and one draw. And the one win I remember was a four move checkmate. <laughs> Hell yeah. And the one and the one draw was a stalemate in a losing position. <laughs> nice. Amazing. That's like the only way you can draw at that age is like a stalemate yeah. or like king versus king. Or like pre-arranged grandmaster Berlin draw. It's pretty common. <laughs> and my friends kept playing and they got to I had one friend get to 1600 by the time he was like 10 or 11. But now I'm like taking off in chess and I'm crossing the level where they left off at. Growing up, my dad was always like, I wish you would have taken chess more seriously. I wish you, your friends did so well and you didn't even try. And um, now I'm, I'm like a late bloomer with like chess, but I'm also like everything else in life because like not just in chess, but growing up being like trans subconsciously, I always knew like, dang, if I would have been born as a girl instead, my life would be like infinitely better. I would like calculate. I'm like, dang, it was really a flip of a coin to determine whether I would be happy or whether I would be miserable like I am now. Why did the birth lottery not go my way? This is the thoughts of like a 10 year old. Like this is not healthy. I would always like be like, dang, Wish, I wish I could get this life over with and maybe next time around I, I get lucky. That was like my 10-year-old me. Relating this back, I didn't really have much pride in myself. So I didn't try that hard in like school or chess or anything. When you're miserable about yourself, you have no motivation to try. And like the reason why you do well in things is because you're motivated for yourself. When, you're, when you hate yourself, you, there's no motivation. But then it is kind of cool, Sammy, to hear you identify as like a late bloomer. Yeah. Now coming into your chest and coming into your gender identity and doing all of these things later in life. I mean, it's fucking cool. Thank you. And and I'm like, you know, I, I took a break from school, took about two years off because I needed time because I started transitioning when I was 18, right in the middle of my senior year of high school, which was a very rough experience. Wow. Yeah. yeah. What was that? What was that like? I'm, I, I'm okay with being shared because I, I view myself as like educational. Like a lot of people only hear about trans people from like clickbait headlines on Fox News. So like I am their opportunity to educate people so i like it which is also like a terrible burden to put on you but that's a really nice outlook i i know it's not it's not ideal but someone's gonna have to do it and like i'm good at doing it so may as well yeah i agree so senior year of high school i i was like starting to question my identity and i was like maybe i'm not a cishet guy um was that the first time you had really had that thought very clearly? Yeah. Well, the thing is, I always knew like, oh, my life would be exponentially better if I was born as a girl instead. But like, there was no thought of like, I could transition. I just viewed it as like a lost yeah. cause. Like, you get what you get. Like, you can't change it. Like, And if you don't see trans people around you in your life, it. Yeah, that's that's the thing. There was no trans people in my life either. Yeah, so I didn't know. My parents didn't know either. So yeah, it was awkward because like I was in a high school, you know, affluent suburban public school. Um, People like knew me as like a guy or whatever. It was basically like a competition between my internal feelings and like the external expectations of who I was supposed to be. So like at school, I would act like how I was expected. And then I would go home and be like, oh, I want to transition. And then I would go back and be like, maybe I shouldn't. And then I would come home and be like, oh, I definitely want to. And it was like just a yeah. 
clash of things. And it made me super depressed because I didn't think transitioning yeah. was possible. I was just like, I don't want to be miserable for the rest of my life. And I don't think I can transition. So I should just end my life. I don't want to be miserable anymore. Yeah, but then I'm sorry to hear that. Yeah. Um, but I didn't somehow. Um <laughs> Yeah, which is like incredible. I mean, truly. <laughs> I, I can't yeah. even imagine living that experience. And I'm I don't know. I'm I'm glad you're here, Sammy. Like Thank that's you. fucking badass. Thank you. And I think yeah. about it, I think about like all the people who may kill themselves who were experiencing the same thing I did, but like no one even knew that they were trans or just another person who kills themselves. Like that's what yeah. I could have been. And July is when I finally started HRT. July 2019. Yeah, that's life-changing stuff. It was, but it wasn't a magic elixir. I was hoping I would take it and then I would like feel immediately better and all my problems would go away. Like finding a new opening, right? Yeah, but no. that definitely was not the case. No, yeah. That's a like, good, <laughs> that's a good no, joke. No, 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 I agree. I just think Sammy's experience was like a little bit more life-changing than what you just mentioned, JJ, but. I don't know. Learning the classical Sicilian is pretty life-changing. I don't want to, I don't need to get too deep into like the whole two-year time period, but I, um, I started off at college, but I wasn't ready yet. So where in that timeline, Sammy, do you feel like you started to pick up the chest again? This one will get there. That was, that was fall 2020. (laughs) That was fall 2020. I had faith. I had faith we were getting there eventually. We're making progress. In the fall, I go to, in Florida, these are very popular in Florida. They're called Cava bars or Cava lounges. Um, Because in Florida, there's a lot of Southeast Asian and Polynesian immigrants. So kava is a root, it's a plant, it's like ground up and made into tea and they drink it, it's like for recreation. It makes you very calm and relaxed. It's good for anxiety and whatnot. It was, it was probably the only antidepressant that worked for me in my, in my worst moments. So at my local kava bar, they were doing chess tournaments and I go to my first chess tournament. I, I think in advance, I played a bit on chess.com as a warm up, and I was at 800, which I was insecure about. I thought that was terrible. But in retrospect, looking back, I'm like 800 after not playing seriously for like 10 years is actually not that bad. The games were 10-0. And on my second game, I played this guy who was like 1600 on chess.com and I got absolutely destroyed. Yeah. I, I, the funny thing is I viewed there was a 1400 there and a 1600 and I viewed them as like I viewed them as like chess gods at the time. Oh, I remember that, Sammy, when I first started getting back into chess and people on Reddit would post and they were like, oh, yeah, I'm like a chess.com 1400. I was like, whoa. <laughs> and I still am. Yeah, that's how I view them. I'm like, whoa, you're like a god of chess. Like, <laughs> Yeah. Oh, I remember when I first started, I was talking to my partner. And for some reason, he like always remembers me saying this. He likes to quote me back to myself to embarrass me and he's like remember when you thought it would like take you years to like pass a thousand on <laughs> just.com <laughs> i was like yeah michael that was like the first day i played <laughs> like you need to let this go so yeah um slowly but surely i i started playing and i started getting a lot better and i was talking to the 1400 and i was like Who, what could i do to get better and he's like i watched this guy called gotham chess on youtube oh yeah. and i was like oh I'll look him up. I learned his like King's Indian video. But it's like, you can play it against everything. (laughs) The Pyrrhic or King's Indian. So I actually learned openings because when I was around 800, I just went for the fried liver every game. That sounds about right. (laughs) It was more evolved than when I, when I was a little kid, I went for four move checkmate. I had evolved to go for fried liver every game (laughs) instead. (laughs) 
And then I got to about 1200 on chess.com and at the Kava bar, I started winning the tournaments and I became another trans person who I actually met at this LGBT group. They swiped up on my, I posted like, Oh my God, I won the Kava bar chess tournament for the first time. I'm so happy. $50 Kava tab. Let's go. (laughs) Um, my friend was like, hey, I play chess too. Can I come to the next one? And I was like, oh, I haven't even played chess. Yeah, come. And apparently this friend at the time was 1900 on Lee Chess. So then we were competing and my friend was like, hey, do you know, there's the tournament called the Southern Open this summer in Orlando. I think I want to go to that. And that was my first thought of actually playing in a USCF rated tournament. Mm-hmm. So I play my first opponent is a 2000. And I was oh, like, shit, <laughs> I was like, Okay, the goal is to not get crushed in 20 moves. And like somehow it was a Fianchetto Kings Indian. I was white. Somehow the position was plus two on move 20. Like I had no idea how I wasn't losing, but I I, I was still not That's very good. Sick I, didn't, as hell. I, I didn't know how to convert my advantage. I just didn't know what to do with my nice position. Yeah. And slowly like he came back into the game and eventually won. But everyone was like super surprised, like. That you held your own, I guess, at 2000 as a 100 player. Yeah. <laughs> um, and he was like super shocked. He was like, no, nah, you played very well. Uh, my next opponent was a 1500. And I was actually up two pawns against him. I was up two pawns and it was completely winning. But then he, I blundered a checkmating attack. The final round, I'm playing against a 1700. And we actually go into a drawn end game. But I get low on time, panic, but everyone was super shocked because it's like I, I should have drawn a 1700 and I could have beaten that 1500. Next tournament was the Southern Open and I was playing U1200 with my 118 rating. I lost my first game against an 1100, but I guess I pulled a Swiss Gambit because I went on to win my last the four games and finished four out of five. My friend and I won mixed doubles and we each got $300. Theoretically, I think mixed doubles is a weird concept. It's like a weird gendered concept, but I've won it twice and gotten like a thousand dollars from it. So while a mixed a concept of mixed doubles still exists, I will take advantage of it. <laughs> we're gonna we're gonna mix double in Vegas. Yeah, right? oh, JJ and I are gonna do mixed doubles at the national open. Wait, are you really? Yeah. yeah. Fuck yeah. Oh my god. <laughs> I found this out yesterday when Sam informed me of this and I was like, oh yeah, duh. So I got four out of five at Southern class, got $300. And I used that to travel up to Philly for the U.S. Open. And I stayed with my friend, another trans chess friend, another trans chess friend who I met at the World Open. Her Mm. and a a cis guy friend named Perry. They're both super sweet. We met actually in the Skittles room going into the last round. And we had to have that funny story where that guy uh, looks at me, looks at my friend Maddie and is like, are you a woman? And then he looks at me, he's like, are you a woman? And then we're both like, yeah. And then he looks at like our cis dude friend who has like a beard. And he's like, are you a woman? Like he was so confused. And my friend was like, "Uh, no. And then then, at the World Open Blitz, this little kid it's like eight year old was like, you look like a girl, but your voice sounds like a boy. And that, that's like the, the worst thing I've ever encountered. Interestingly, like I haven't had any bad stories. I, I can't tell if they're trans friendly or they just don't know that I'm trans. Um, younger people might figure it out sooner or later. But like a lot of older people don't really realize trans people exist unless there's like a person who's like very obviously like trans that like everyone I'm trans and and in regards to like being a woman in chess also I haven't really endured anything terrible yet thankfully there is like the mansplaining which is kind of annoying like guys trying to argue that this variation is better than what I did or something 
or there's guys who I meet as chess friends and then they just like become very awkwardly flirtatious. And I'm like, can we just be chess friends, please? Like there was one guy who I met and he's very nice. And I like played chess with him a lot in New York. And I'm like, I'm going to the North American Open. And he was like, ooh, do you have any room in your hotel room? And I was like, uh, I'm staying with a friend. <laughs> I hope I hope as trans people become more and more like prevalent in chess and in society at large, the chess community like doesn't become very reactionary. Like I, I hope the community at large would like defend a trans woman that's doing very good in like chess, especially like a woman's tournament or something. We have yet to see if that will happen, but I, I hope so. And like, I know like Jen Shahad is like one of the big woman figures in chess and she is trans friendly. Like she's friends with uh, Charlotte and others. So that is nice to hear. But I have heard that US chess is very good, which I would, it kind of seems that way, but I've heard that FIDE may not be very good. I've heard, I've heard a story of a trans person getting like harassed by some like transphobic woman at a tournament and FIDE kind of took her side. And the person was trying to tell me, like, FIDE is a lot worse. Be careful. But there was a trans woman who, who played in the Women's Olympiad in, like, the 90s, I think, for, for Spain. So, yeah, I met my friends there. And then I stay with them for the U.S. Open, another nine-round tournament. And I didn't realize it yet, but there were no sections, which is super amazing. And we did the four-day schedule, which was horrible. The first round, I show up, I'm playing a 1700. My rating is 118, and I win. <laughs> oh my I beat gosh. my 1750 opponent with my 118 rating. That must have felt so good. And then round two, very little rest. I'm playing a WGM, Sabina Foyser. My goal is 2350 rated USCF. My goal is to not be lost by like move 20. It's like move 10 or yeah. whatever. My goal is to not lose. That that fast. That's exactly how I felt the first time I played correspondence with JJ. It was like, <laughs> I just don't want to embarrass myself. Like the bar is so low. In my head, I was like, I want to make it to 50 moves. I'd be really proud. Yeah. And my thought was, we're going to lose regardless. Don't get sad about the game. Just have fun. Totally. Well, she happens to play into like 15 moves of Catalan theory that I know by heart that I learned wow. when I was 1,000. And then on like move 20, she makes an inaccuracy. I have a very nice position. Oh um, my God. Uh, at one point, doesn't she start going to look at the cross table to see the pairings? Oh, again? no. Yeah, no. After like the first eight moves of me playing straight up Catalan theory, she gets up and like, I see her staring at the pairing sheet, like kind of confused. She's like, am I really playing a 118? Like, did they mix up the, the day is the name put the wrong rating? Like, Am I at the wrong board? <laughs> yeah, because the thing is, when you get That's 10 moves so of theory played against you, the 10 moves of theory could be played by anyone from a yeah. 1600 to a GM. Like, yes. So she was double checking, doing a double take. I'm not losing. I'm down a pawn. So I just stupidly hung a pawn. Like, I got up. Okay. The thing is, is it was, it was a Catalan, right? So I left my C pawn hanging and I should have exchanged it. But then I left it hanging too long to the point where black can just take it. And it's completely sure. fine for black. I know that um, timing can be so tricky. Uh, yeah. Like when, when to leave it. And then if they exchange, like, do you even try to win it back? It definitely is yeah. not super easy. So I'm down a pawn, but my position is very good. Um, and then we end up simplifying into an end game where I have two bishops. She has two knights and she's up a pawn. 
the end game is very holdable. I just have no idea what I'm doing. <laughs> That's like the most relatable thing I've ever heard anyone say on this podcast. Please continue. We're both. Lo- the other thing I took pride in was the fact that she was low on time. Also, she actually had to think against me. She didn't just like blitz out all of her moves. We're both under three minutes with five second delay. Yeah. And I panicked. I got low on time and then I lost a second pawn and then it was completely losing. After the game, we talked and she was like, you played really well. Now, now you take lessons from Sabina, right? You were Sabina, yes. She's super sweet. And, and yeah, she's helped me a lot. So after the tournament, then I keep playing. And then this January, I go off to Vegas for the North American Open. Uh, playing U1200, three grand for first place. And I lost a game to this little girl midway through. So I'm, I'm five out of six going into the last round. That morning, I woke up nervous and played a horrible game. But, you know, I bounced back. I'm going into the last round, if I win, I get second place in $1,500. And I played the worst game of my life and lost in 11 moves. I blundered a checkmate. Oh. The worst game of your life up to that point. And, and that's how I lose $1,500. <laughs> I end up, like, tying for 10th and getting, like, $20. Um, you're like, fuck <laughs> this. <laughs> yeah. If I drew, I would have gotten $400. It was like 1500, 1400, 20. Like, <laughs> and I started crying. That was rough, but I bounced back. I bounced back. 10 days later, I'm playing at the Gulf coast, New Year's open 1450 section. So I'm playing, you know, I was at 1200 and now I'm at 1450 and I ended up winning with four and a half out of five. I ended up getting first place. Is that the one that you have that picture of, Sammy? Yes. And then I posted the picture of me with the trophy and it went viral on r slash chess on Reddit. Yeah. And it is now the, it was the number three all-time upvoted picture. I was, I was beating Levy Roseman's uh, engagement <laughs> announcement by a couple hundred. And I was, I, I was a hundred upvotes behind Hikaru Nakamura's birthday picture. But then the recent post of Magnus playing drunk chess at a bar crossed me and he's now number one. I'm now number four. I feel like me and JJ are probably willing between the two of us. We'll make a hundred alt accounts and we'll bump you above Hikaru. Oh, I was going to say the much more unhinged thing of we can put the link to the post in the show notes, show notes. So all our listeners yes, like okay, it. Audience, if you're on Reddit, we'll put the Duh. link and you can upvote <laughs> the picture. Wait, JJ, how is that more unhinged than what I said? That is way more hinged and reasonable. Like, yes, our listeners can upload it. (laughs) Making a million bot accounts. (laughs) So, so yeah, I won. It was nice. And then I played a tournament last weekend. I going into the last round, I was two and a half out of three going into round four. And I won a very long end game. Um, And I was tired, though, because round two, three and four each went like four to five hours each. And the final game thing is I was very cocky and I was like, I just beat the toughest opponent I'm going to face in this section. I'm not going to lose to some 1200 schmuck who has <laughs> a half point lower than me. All I need is a draw to get first. Oh, no, I My, already don't want to know. And, I thought I was and, ready for the next part, but I wasn't ready. <laughs> so my food comes late. I have to stop, show up to the board 20 minutes late because my salad from Panera came late. From her Uber Eats. Oh, so fuck I was Panera. already very hectic. Fuck I was already very hectic and chaotic. Sammy, just know Panera was trying to sponsor this podcast. Well, we're gonna cut the deal. You can okay. use you can use your code fuck Panera for twenty dollars <laughs> off your next order from uh family size still for lasagna. <laughs> so I'm very all over the place. I'm not relaxed because I'm looking for my food. Totally, totally. You're scattered. I show up to the board, scatterbrained. Yeah. Um, and it's only five moves. So oh I'm my black. god! I have the black pieces. Did you get scholars made it? No, no, it's not checkmate, but it's it's like lost in five moves. Okay, okay. I'm ready. It's, it's e4, 
C5, I'm black. Uh, Knight F3, D6, C3. Knight F6, Bishop E2. I go, in my head, I'm like, oh, look at this dumbass. He already hangs a free pawn. I'm completely winning. And I was tired. I wouldn't have made that mistake if I was just playing an online game or if it was earlier in the tournament. This is where listeners can um, can pause the video and see if they can find what's wrong with Knight Takes E4. And then I go, oh, free pawn, and, and I take. And then my opponent comes back to the board and plays Queen A4 check, and then I start crying. <laughs> and, and the thing is, I forgot to mention, before the tournament started, there was a simul exhibition and GM Timur Gareev was playing, and there was about 20 of us. Um, and somehow we went into an end game that was a drawn end game. And I was like, I look at my the boards around me, and I'm like, everyone's getting crushed, and I'm gonna draw an end game against him. Like, I'm the <laughs> only one who, who made it to an end game. Like, what? I would feel like I won when I make it to an end game. <laughs> I'm like, oh my God, I'm gonna draw an end game versus GM. What the hell is going on? What the hell is going on? This really is your theme, Sammy. This is your pattern. <laughs> yes. You can play such a strong opening and you can play such solid chess and get really far, but then it sounds like it's almost a panic anxiety response kicks in. And I'm really, I'm really excited to talk about this more because on the one hand, I'm like, yes, Julia is gonna say exactly what Sam needs to hear about like the stage of the game. And then I'm also like, wait, shit, Julia hates end games as much as, <laughs> as Sam is playing them. Like, like, is this yeah, just pa- kind of like part of worse? me is like, you don't need to win the end game. <laughs> you made it to the end game. You did great. You can go home and eat Panera and feel good about yourself. Yeah. No, sorry, so, Stouffer, um, Stouffer. So, so yeah, I'm like, oh my God, I'm going to draw an end game versus GM. What the hell is going on? I, my silly head thinks I'm, for, I, I, I threaten a, ro- a rook trade. Because I thought the king and pawn endgame was was at least a draw for me. This hurts to hear, Sammy. I'm like, oh. Because it's still awesome, right? Like, you played such a great game. But it's like, oh, it could have been even a it little could have been. That's my That's my current state of my chess right now. It could be really, it could be amazing. Wait, this is so beautiful. I, it could be. We're this is there. such a beautiful reflection, right? It's this beautiful metaphor. Because it could be. And it can be, and it will be. Like, this almost reminds me of how you were describing what it was like growing up and being 10 years old. It could have been amazing, right? If I had been born a girl. And then you eventually got this place in your life where you're like, oh, I literally can transition. And then you fucking did. I think your chest is going to have this beautiful parallel arc where it could be, and then it fucking will be. Thank you. Right now, it's like, it could have been first place, you 1600. It could have been the only person to draw a GM during the simul. You're going to draw a GM. I know it. The thing is, when I tell people about the game, everyone was like, that's cap. That's definitely cap. And then I like show them the game. They were like, how did you mess this up? Everyone's like, there's no way. Like JJ, I think even doubted me. I told JJ, I told them about my game versus Sabina. And I don't think they believe me. JJ didn't believe me until they saw the game. JJ, did you think she was lying? (laughs) Yes. (laughs) <laughs> well, I mean, I didn't I didn't think that she thought she was lying. Oh, OK. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, I see now. But, I mean, this is this is a phenomena that happens, right? Yeah. And then it's like after the tournament, I was like, how the hell did I go into a drawn endgame against a, a GM and then lose to a twelve hundred and five moves against an obvious opening trap? Like what That's the chess. heck just happened? JJ, what's your take on that? Well, I mean, you take playing a 25, 2600 even for a full game, and then you take losing 
to like a, a trap that a 600 should see and you average it out and you get to 1500. And that, that sounds true. like a joke, but honestly, this is something to be careful of. Like you're obviously playing way above your rating strength and you're obviously are going to flourish, but to really just take seriously, like, I don't know, like we joked and we were talking about the tagline. It's like, you're not just your rating, you're also all of your blunders. There's a version of that that I think really is true. Like there is a strong temptation to just identify with our best moves or our best play and to really not want to accept that we're actually just all of all of our plays. I like your comment where it's like you take my like 2000 level play and then you take my like trading into a losing end game or just hanging a piece. I, yeah. And I was going to like, I was like already thinking, I'm like, oh, I'm going to win this $800. After round four, when I beat the previous number one, I treated that like it was the final round. Like I was like, took that was the biggest challenge. Now we just coast to the finish line. And I'm going to buy you, you buy my ticket to Las Vegas for the, Women's Open and National Open. So in your head, it's like you've already you've already won it. I, You're like, in my Great. head, I already won it. And that's why I was like all over the place. It seems yeah. like sometimes it is the the money. But it also just seems like sometimes it's the pressure of the game, right? When you're playing a GM in a Simul or a WGM and the game is going from the outside, it seems like as the game progresses and you almost get closer to that thing that you really want, the excitement and the pressure and the nerves of that are really starting to impact your ability to make decisions that you would normally make. Yeah. I mean, I I know you said yeah. like, oh, this was that one game was a pawn break that I just didn't know about. But other times it's like, oh, I I blunt I made a blunder that I really do feel like I wouldn't have made if I was playing lower stakes chess online, yeah. for example. So the thing is, like, and this is something that Sabina talked about, where I do well for for so much, but come up just short. The easy interpretation, right, might be like our end games, just sort of a weakness in your chess rep, right? Is that the thing that you just need to study? But it sounds like that's not necessarily it. I think it's also psychological too. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. It feels like your ability to focus and stay engaged and feel like you're clicked into the game is kind of going by the wayside and you're even describing it feels like a panic. Yeah. The first question I have for you is that in those scenarios, when you feel like your nerves are going up so much and you're feeling so anxious about the game and you're like, whoa, I could actually do this. I could win this money. That's my thought process. Oh my God, I'm about about to win this money and draw this GM like... Do you feel like that kind of state of arousal or those kind of thoughts are perhaps so stimulating that you feel like almost dissociated from the chess game? Like you're actually not in that cognitive flow state? The thing is, there have been times when I was like that and I still went on to win. Like I was like that during the U1400 tournament that I won in the last round. During the last round, I was calculating how much money I'd win if I get if I win this game. So, like, it's not entirely always the case that when I think like that, I mess up. Sure. But every time that I mess up, I do think like that. Yeah, that's that's the pattern we want to see. Like, there are times where I'm able to find the right move anyway, but I am noticing when I'm making these really easy blunders that I'm in this state of, it, I mean, it sounds like kind of agitation. It is excitement because the chance to win the money is like a positive stress, yeah. but even so it still is kind of pulling you out of your ability to think clearly. Yeah, that's, that's right. I, I think that's a big thing. I think I, sometimes I'm guess I may assume that the game's already done and like, I kind of stop, yeah. pretty much, I stop playing as well as I do prematurely. I mean, I know um, that feeling. I like, nothing is I t- high stakes I, as you, yeah. but I've played games like that where I'm winning by a lot and I'm like, oh, my opponent sucks. Like they already hung a piece in like a very simple opening trap. So now I'm just going to demolish them. 
but then I kind of take my eyes off the ball, right? And then suddenly I'm like in a real end game and I'm like, wait, what happened? And it does feel kind of dissociative almost. This was a state that I was in a lot when I was in high school and playing around like the class B level around the time that I just gave up on chess for quite a long time was I would put a lot of work into trying to get certain positions out of the opening or like playing very well tactically middle game and then feel like I would achieve something and then just let my foot off the gas. And, yeah. and looking back on that, the major insight I have to a lot of what was going on in those games was even though I knew what not to, I didn't exactly know what to do. I more just knew that my position was good or put it into put it in modern parlance. And so I think the one thing I want to stress is that in addition to this point of like, well, when you're in this state of agitation, it's much harder to, you know, make the good decision. I want to say, okay, you know, you know, not to make this committal decision and go into this position, but something that can really help. It's a lot easier when you're armed with a lot of alternative positive plans. Agitation is when you'll calculate worse. Agitation is when you're going to make those decisions faster. All of that's true. But the real thing is like, why did you start by calculating that in the first place? Right. This also kind of reminds me, JJ, of what we talked about with Robin, where it's like when I don't have ideas or plans or like know what to do in a position, it's just a lot easier to check out too. It's almost like, my brain is less interested. There's not lots of things for me to think about. I just don't know what to do. So if anything, maybe what I'm hearing a little bit there is also maybe the problem isn't that Sam doesn't know in games. Maybe the problem is she does know in games and she knows that there's lots of favorable simplifications into winning or drawn or holding king and pawns. And so she thinks she sees one and wants to clarify into that thing. This is why like you're more inclined to see like intermediate players sack everything on a speculative attack than beginner players because intermediate players are good enough at attacking and tactics to know when the sacrifice works and then they try and force it because it's all they know and they want that clarity but when you don't know anything you don't really try and force it yeah okay so what do you what do you recommend then jj when you're in that headspace where you're like i i don't know what to do i i I see a lot of things that I know I should. Yeah, yeah, and I, I see things that. I shouldn't do, but I don't know what to do. What is like the mental framework that someone can shift into? What kind of questions should we be asking or what should someone look for on the board? Great question. Um, so one thing that I try and do, and this came up in a lesson I had just a few days ago where somebody was saying, you know, this is the kind of position I don't know how to approach or I don't have a plan. And my suggestion was, well, you know what you should do and you don't have a plan? Make one up. And what I mean by that is literally, okay, let's look at some, let's look at the position with fresh eyes and really just like make assessments, even if we don't think they're relevant, or even if we don't think they're that exploitable until we can point to something that we want to improve about our position or something that we Mm. want to take care of in their position, or what is literally anything I can point to on the board that strikes me as relevant. And now suddenly you have four or five candidate moves that all address something very, very small in scope that could make the position a little bit easier to play for you or harder for them. And again, coming back to the idea of trying to force that clarity into a situation because you knew that you had advantages rather than really just try and say, okay, what are the smallest little things on the board that I could accumulate with no risk to make things easier and easier to play? Um, and Julia has talked a ton about like, you know, what you can do to kind of like catch yourself when you're realizing that you're getting into that panic state, you're getting into the, I don't want to do this, the, I don't know what to do things. But I think those concrete questions can be things that you can do to reframe once you're kind of working through activating through that. Yeah. I think that's a big part. Like, I think another thought process, except from like the nerves and all that is like me being like, oh, let's just try and force, simplify, let's force like. And then it's really hard to separate that 
from this feeling of almost, I don't mean this to be judgmental, but I think like maybe just like an objective way of describing it is you can develop a sort of entitlement where it's like, well, I deserve, I deserve to do well from here. Like I've earned this good position by outplaying you and being better than you. Now, where's my fucking win? Um, (laughs) I was like, all right, how do I end this now? I'm winning. Exactly. Exactly. And just remembering that like the whole thing is we have to shift and this is where you need to like channel your inner Korchnoi and be like, my advantage is that I now have better position, which means that you have to prove that you can claw back into this game and you have to prove it from a shittier position um, instead of being worried about, you know, like, will I be able to convert it? And it's like, well... (laughs) Maybe, maybe not. Will they be able to hold it? That's a much more interesting question. I guess that's a good point. I think I put the pressure on me to convert it and not the pressure on the guy or the person to to hold it. And then I think the other side of it when it comes to not proving, and this is something that enemy of the podcast, Gopal, has said before. Enemy is of the podcast. When you're when you're when you're when you're pushing, like instead of being really worried that you might not win, this is something that can tie into respecting your opponent too. Um if, um, if you push really hard, if you don't take on too much risk, if you don't play too concretely, but if you like really slowly improve your position and try and play the proper way for 50 moves or something, and they take, they still hold the draw. Like that's not scary at yeah. all. We played a really good game of chess and they played a really good game of chess from a worse position. And that's awesome. It's like they, uh, being very proud of your opponent almost for holding a well-earned draw when you push really hard. Versus just playing so hard for the win that they don't have to earn the draw. That happened the other day when I was playing an 1100 at my Kava bar, he drew me for the first time and Hell yeah. it was a well-earned draw. Do you feel like that would help take some of the pressure off? And do you feel like the pressure is the problem? Yeah, I definitely put a lot of pressure on myself. Um, like if I don't get first place at a tournament where I'm like one of the rating favorites, like being a 1500 and you 1600, if I don't get first place, I view it as a disappointment. Which is really funny because on the one hand, obviously I get that you should hold yourself to a high standard. But what's funny to me about that is you were, you firsthand know about these fucking 100s that can outplay 1500s that are just floating around there. Right. Yeah. No, that is true. The game who got first place was a 1200. Like, yeah. And now that we're talking about rating, we can talk about like, I was talking with JJ about like my plans for the summer right now. My live rating is at 1491. I dropped a bit. Um, and there is you 1500 in Vegas and there's you 1700. I could stop playing chess until Vegas and then be the highest rated person in you 1500. Or I can just not be authoritarian on myself and have fun and just, see what happens and then play you 1700 and maybe I'm good enough to compete in that one too. But that literally is the question. So you, you've already gotten there yourself. It kind of is figuring out what are your goals. If your goals are very single track, like I want to win the money. That's the most important. I don't care as much about the chess. I don't really care who I play or how I win it. It sounds like, you know, I have a better shot in this rating range. So it's just kind of like maybe something that you almost same. You have to ask yourself, like, what really is my number one priority here? Is it having fun and getting better yeah. and playing as much chess as I can? Or is it winning as much money as I can? And that's an okay goal. It's just something that you kind of have to ask yourself. No, that's a good point. I think honestly, it's more fun playing against better people. My games against my games against people in the 1600 section weren't like great because they don't like play into opening theory or anything. And plus, you seventeen hundred. Like I just got second place in you sixteen hundreds. I I'm leaning toward just play and have fun 
and whatever happens happens I'm not gonna like control my rating or anything yeah and that's it sounds like that's the way you've been doing it so far and that's been working really well for you like look at your trajectory look at how much you've improved and how much you even just light up when you talk about it what really shines through is like your love of the game and it's always like oh I could have won the money but I didn't but there's almost like uh uh there's like a laissez-faire attitude about it I mean it, it it really your love of chess really does shine through and that's what will keep you going so um I, I feel like you already answered the question yourself but how do you feel about it yeah I I'm de- it's not my thing is I would still be playing chess if we lived in a world where money did not dictate everything about your lives um it's just that when 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 there's so much focus on money like then I stress about the money because that pays for more traveling and, yeah. you know, stuff like that. And also like, there's no guarantee that you're the only person, you know, doing that. Right. Like there might be like, I have, I have a friend whose online ratings are the same as mine. His USCF is still like, uh, I think 14, 1490. And he just hasn't played in 10 years. And he's just really waiting. Finally, he really feels ready for that, you know, like under 1600 world open and his like, he's like, we has 2,400. Right. So it's just like, you do not know yeah. that you are just because you're good and probably better than your rating. Like there's no guarantee that there isn't someone else doing exactly what you yeah, are. I looked the guy who won the guy who won you 1400 at the world open last year in six months, his rating was already at 2000. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think also when you're the rating favorite, it adds a lot of stress and the games aren't as fun. Like if I'm in U1700 and I'm in a drawn end game against 1600, I'm not going to be like, oh God, I got to win this game. I got to win this game. There's so much that you could accomplish or enjoy about those games. Like even the way you described your games where you, you played so well against these incredible opponents, you didn't win, but the pressure wasn't on you to win, right? So you were yeah. able to be like, wow, I was the best he said that I was the most competitive person in the simul. So there were all these other indicators of success and enjoyment um, rather than all the pressure on the outcome of the game itself. Can I suggest something even more radical? What? What if you played the under 1900 section? What oh, if you I really took the pressure it. off? What if oh, you just JJ, like, what if, it. what if you just take any, cause you know, under 1700, even I'm, cause I'm noticing the way you're talking about it. You're still like, and you know, with like a month of improving in schools out, I could still be competitive there too. So what if you put yourself in this very unique situation where that, you're the first entries, person that has encouraged me to do it? Well, one thing I, I've noticed, I think it's a brilliant okay. idea. I really do. Ah, uh, but the thing is, if I'm going all the way to Vegas, like, I feel like I got to come back with something. I but, think that that mentality mm-hmm. will lead into all of the things that JJ just described. Like once there's all that pressure of, I need to win something. That's when we're in that forcing headspace. Right. And that's where we're making moves that we wouldn't normally make and playing chess. That's like not in the style of, I don't know. How would you describe it, JJ? Yeah. Um, I mean, I completely agree with how Julia put it and maybe I would want to flip the question and say, if you're going all the way to Vegas, why are you playing a bunch of 14 and 1500s? Here's an opportunity to play some people. People who are way higher rated than you to learn a lot, score some upsets. How, yeah, how many tournaments are you going to get where you know you can really be like total underdog free fall, free form? Having this goal of like, I know I'm going to get into these drawn end games against higher rated players, and I'm giving myself a full weekend to really practice that, right? Um, where not not in the context of, and I need to win these this three thousand dollars or whatever, but just in the I know I'm going to play well, and I know 
that I'm going to get into these very difficult positions psychologically, and I'm going to have so many opportunities in a row to really practice that and push through that. It's going to make it so much easier when like some fucking 1450 is pushing you down a pawn in a rook end game where you need to hold the draw. That's just going to be laughable when he's trying to like, when they're trying to like stress you out about that because you've watched an 1800 do that and fail, or you watch an 1800 do that and succeed, but now you know how they succeeded and won't fall for that again. Yeah, you're. Well, I like smiled pretty big when you mentioned 1900. If there was no money involved, I would definitely do like 1900. You, that's so true, Sammy. You got excited in a way about that that I did not see you get excited about even talking about money prizes. Yeah. Um, but JJ, you're my mixed doubles partner. You should be incentivized to, for me to be in the section where I maximize the amount of points. <laughs> I was just about to say oh, the shit. opposite. No, I literally was going to point this out. Like we know that JJ can like put his money where his mouth is that he thinks the chess is more valuable. If you guys are mixed doubles partners, you can like really take this advice to heart. Oh, that's true. Yeah. Plus like, I, I I'm just also not very good. So like, I think you should use the fact, the fact that you're already like pity partnering with me for your mixed doubles. Pity means, partnering. I was excited yeah. to be your partner. Well, I appreciate you saying that, but, um, after a few days and you'll see my score, you might not feel that way. And you'll just be like, I'm glad I played up two sections. Otherwise I'd be pissed at you right now. <laughs> I don't know. I think that one thing that I was hearing kind of Julia pointing to is, you know, there's this temptation, which I think is very uh, understandable. And I share it to want to have it both ways. I was like, no, like shit or get off the pot. Like, are you, <laughs> yeah. are you here? Cause you're really going to be trying to compete for the money. Or are you here for the chess? Because um, at a certain point, like in some of these things, like the goals are going to come into conflict at a certain point. And so being able to say to yourself, I have clearly and definitively chosen that this is my goal, at least for this tournament. Okay, I'm definitely not going to do you 1500. Sick. Um, now the debate will be between 1700 and 1900. Can we make a poll? Julia, can we make a Twitter poll? Definitely would influence. <laughs> and who knows, maybe I could get like early because the thing is, I think stress is one thing that's holding me back from getting really good. Yeah. And one thing I've noticed too, when you talk about your prior experience, Sammy, is that whenever you have stretched yourself and you've played people who are really much higher rated than you, you do really well. There's something about yeah, that. And the open tournaments are so much fun. Like that, my, all of my, like, I love this tournament stories are open tournaments. I think JJ's idea is a brilliant one. I saw that spark like light up in you <laughs> when he said you 1900. That is like the feeling I want you to chase. Uh, I don't give a shit about the money. I know money matters and I know it can feel like pressure. But if you have any ability to like follow that feeling, I'm always going to encourage you to do it. Another problem I have to work on is like when I sit down at like rated over the board chess, like I view it differently. I like, I take yeah. it like super seriously. It's not even just anxiety. It's just like, this is super serious. I don't know if I trust myself doing this. Like I must overthink everything and like view things through a different perspective that like I normally wouldn't view it. Is it um, necessarily a bad thing? I know like when I'm playing chess, I, I truly like don't care enough about winning. And then there's for some reason, there's sometimes where I'll start a game. For example, if like JJ is watching me play on lead chess and then suddenly I'm like, okay, I need to win the game and I'll play kind of differently. And it's like, why don't I always sit down and think I really want to win and try to win and try really hard. It is like a different mindset, but, um, I think I'm too, too far in that one direction. Okay. Yeah. You kind of like passed. Uh, I, this is so serious. I have to do 
I, I, I don't know what I'm doing. This is so serious. I don't trust myself to do well. Let's like overthink everything. Like, I'm going to make a Julia move, which is to say, it sounds like there's two separate thoughts going here. So I want to separate the uh, taking things very seriously, which sounds good actually from the, I'm going to overthink things and not trust myself. Like, why the fuck is that taking things seriously? (laughs) That's true. Well, another thought came into my mind. Well, well, let's answer JJ's question first, Sammy, before we (laughs) move off, before you deflect. (laughs) Nice. Um, (laughs) this is my job. (laughs) What do those things feel really integrated to you? Like as soon as you take something seriously and you are, it's almost like a vulnerability, right? You're like acknowledging, I really care about this. I am committed. I really want to win. As soon as that like level of seriousness happens, do you feel like that feels somehow integrated with these sort of like negative schemas that um, I'm going to overthink it. Yeah. I think there's like, so my thought process when I sit down at the board is like, I think there's like a jolt of fear. It's like, all right, we better not fuck this up. Like, like that is like. Right. So those are, those are two different spaces. One of those is an anxiety response, a fear response. Yeah. That is different fear from the failure. seriousness. Right. So like one, one of those we might want to address and we can try to regulate the other one. We might want to even tap into more. That's why when I was kind of clicking into the serious piece, I'm like, oh, that really actually helps my chest. But it sounds like once I'm taking it seriously. So once you're in that headspace where you're like, yes, I'm super invested in this, that is being accompanied by the anxiety response where it's like, well, now I have something to lose. um, And I really don't want to lose. Yeah, it's not. I'm going into it with a normal mentality of let's just do the best we can. It's not totally. you better win this or else it's going to be a failure of a tournament. Um, right. Also, can I ask another question? Um, what happens if it is a failure of a tournament? Like, how does that feel when you have tournaments that have gone super poorly? Well, money definitely accentuates the negative feelings that come with it. Okay. It's not just oh my god, I played terribly. It's I played terribly and lost a thousand dollars or whatever the prize money was. It's like you There's literally that. have this like objective measurement mm. of like what that loss represents. But you didn't lose a thousand dollars. You lost a chance to make a thousand dollars. True. That's right. You um, lost your entry fee, but you 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 did lose some stuff, right? You lost a weekend, you lost your entry fee, whatever travel costs, but you didn't lose a thousand dollars. True. And then I'll be like, oh, I just I keep I wasted my time here. And if I, I kind of dedicate time to this, I better do well. Like drove all the way here. I'm also behind on my homework. Ah, then I just like think about everything else I'm not doing well in in life. And I'm mm-hmm. like, oh no, I'm doing so badly. Ah, I get in this like very like constant negative like schema in my brain where I'm just like going through It does through sound all like a things. spiral. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Spiral, like a constant like negative thought loop of like everything that, that I think. That's my bread and butter, Sam. That's my bread and butter. Um, Great. What's the solution, numbers. JJ? Fix that for her. Drugs. Go on, go on. So yes. dr- drugs are a good start, but I think that um, what I've experienced, what, I, what my therapists and psychiatrists have talked to me about a lot is really trying to, similar to the spirals you were describing, you know, during games where you start getting anxious or feeling this pressure on yourself that you're better, therefore you should convert, you're up playing this person, therefore you need the win now. Once you can kind of name that, that allows you to kind of get off the ride a little bit or, and I mean, then there's everything from like breathing techniques and whatnot, but really just the first step is, you know, accepting or just admitting that it's like, okay, cool. I am feeling like I have wasted this weekend because I spent all this time on chess and didn't even do well. Cognitive labeling check. So just pause there. And before you let that be like, Ooh, speaking of wasted time, 
here's all the other things I could have done in that time that are now that I've also wasted studying chess. And also speaking of waste, I'm a waste of a person. And here we are. Um, before we get, to. yeah, I got there too. I see you. Um, no, but, can, can I just pause? I just, and, and you can just keep going too, JJ. It's just like, as a therapist, I've just, rec- I've identified so many cognitive distortions or sometimes we call them like thinking traps and what you've just said. And sometimes it is helpful to like take that pause and almost recognize like, yes, I am catastrophizing. I have a negative exactly. bias. I am jumping to conclusions. Um, even just labeling those and recognize them as distorted or negative or anxiety thoughts can help get some distance from those thoughts. Because then if you can just take that pause and be like, okay, hold on. Do I, do I actually think that it was a waste like at the tournament? I wish I did better. Sure. But like, um, so like, so questions I might try and ask myself are, do I have any games that I'm excited to talk to my coach about? Do I have, did I, did I have fun hanging out with my friends? Um, do I have any experiences that I think I can take and improve from? Um, before I started realizing this was a shit show of a tournament, how did it feel to be sitting at the board phone off really disconnected and stuff? Do I really agree with that statement that I just heard of this was a waste or it can, or do I have these things? And I mean, talking about like getting that distance, I thought that was a really good way that Julia put it of being able to like, no, okay. It was a disappointment. It was a bummer, but also like it does, it's not a waste. Like I'm glad I didn't spend that weekend fucking catching up on my homework and then not have any new chess to show Sabina. I'm glad I didn't spend that weekend, you know, just like doing whatever and then not and then being on my phone the whole time and being bummed out because the internet's a terrible place sometimes. Like um I had some pretty cool experiences. Sucks that it cost me some rating and some money and stuff, but like there's good stuff that came out of it too. It doesn't feel like the entire thing was a waste. And speaking of which, so is my life. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that's, that's, that's kind of what I try and make my approach um, with mixed, mixed success, but that's always the goal. Like, is that actually true that because I did poorly, this was a waste of my time? Sometimes the answer is yes. a beautiful example, JJ, of cognitive labeling and cognitive restructuring and cognitive challenging. Like we challenge our thoughts. And sometimes when we challenge those thoughts, we realize that we deeply fundamentally disagree with them. And that can kind of almost instantaneously set us free from the emotional reactivity to that thought. And I think that just to give an example of my own play, I think the best kind of breakthrough I had there was maybe the first time that I tried doing that cognitive restructuring and that labeling and realized, no, you know what? That actually was a fucking waste. I got nothing from that. I am not excited to show this game because I know exactly what went wrong. I'm right. I didn't run into any of my friends. I didn't find the experience of being at the board pleasurable. The room we were in fucking sucked. Like I had injured my ankle and had to walk 10 minutes on crutches to get there. And I wish I had that day back just to like fucking rest. But what was so nice about that is realizing that was almost like, okay, cool. For the first time, actually, my worst fear did happen. I played a tournament and it was a waste. I lost to somebody much lower rated and got nothing out of it. And it was terrible. And then that almost reignited my love of chess in a new way because my worst fear actually happened. And not just I bought into it, but I really did think about it. And I was like, yeah, that fucking sucked. That almost felt, I felt this like liberating feeling almost of saying, and now what can I actually do to make sure that doesn't happen again? There is so so something to that. Like when our worst case scenario finally happens or does come true, it can totally set us free. Like, I love that story, JJ. Such an important part of that story is that 
if I just kind of didn't let my really challenge that narrative of whether or not I was always living that fear every time I had a bummer of a result, I would have thought that I'm always right around the corner from that fear. But just realizing I have a good feeling for you, Sammy. I think it's going to be I think it's going to go well. Thank you. As always, thank you for letting us take you into this deep, dark forest. Where two plus two equals five, and the path leading out is only wide enough for listeners like you. Intro and outro music provided by JPEG Mafia. We would be truly touched if you subscribe and leave us a glowing review. And tell all of your friends. (laughs) Yeah, all of them. And every week, we'll be gifting one lucky subscriber who leaves a five-star review a lifetime premium diamond membership to leechess.org. Unlocking all of their features. Even that? Especially that. And don't forget to follow us on Twitter at ChessFeelsPod. Oh, and if you didn't like what you heard, do not hesitate to message any feedback. No matter how critical or scathing. Directly to Mr. Dodgy, our social media manager, even though he doesn't know it, at (laughs) ChessProblem. Yeah.